So we are continuing our series in the book of Hebrews, which Pastor Daniel started, I guess, three weeks ago. And he has gone through the first two chapters. And so this morning, I'm tasked to turn the page to the third chapter and the first six verses. That's what we will be looking at. If you're reading in your pew Bible, the page is 1185. It should also be up on the screen. I uh, was using various translations as I was preparing this, so there might be some little wording difference in something that I read or say, but it's all good. So Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, reading from the NIV, says, Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess, He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, God, that you would bless the reading of your word to our hearts and our understanding, and Holy Spirit, illuminate your word, Lord that we can leave here today uh, enriched by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Last month, my wife Donna and I had a, uh, a nice little three-day getaway. Uh, we returned to the area in western New York where my alma mater, Elam Bible Institute, uh, and now Elam Bible Institute and College is located. And we briefly visited the campus one afternoon, sort of walked down memory lane, remembering our time there, which we have some very fond memories. But the primary reason that we decided to to visit Western New York was to revisit a place that we really loved while we were there, a place that our family used to visit pretty frequently, was less than a half an hour, or is less than a half hour or so from the campus. It's called Letchworth State Park. And it's a beautiful park. If you've never been there, it's just a gorgeous place. It is uh, sometimes referred to as the Grand Canyon of the East. It has a gorge that runs along the 17-mile length of the park that some places is about 550 feet deep. There are three waterfalls in the park that are part of the Genesee River that runs through it. And there are 66 miles of hiking trails in the park. And there's a road that runs from north to south, a paved road that you can drive on, of course, through the park, much as Skyline Drive is in Shenandoah Valley, if you've been there. So you can enter the park a couple of different places. You can drive from north to south or south to north the whole length of the park in about 30 minutes or so. 
if you skip all of the scenic overlooks and you don't take any of the trails along the way. But of course, the, the idea, the key to really appreciating a place like Letchworth is to take a closer look, to consider all the beauty that it has to offer. So last month while we were there, we entered the park and within five or ten minutes we, we came upon the largest of the three waterfalls or the, the area where that is and we parked the car and we took a trail down some 150, 180 feet of stairs to get a closer look at the falls, to get a closer look of the rock formations and all the beautiful creation of God. And it was breathtaking. And when we went back up, it was breathtaking. <laughs> Climbing 150 to 180 feet or so. But we made it without much trouble, really, surprisingly. So far in the book of Hebrews, we've seen the author speak of Jesus. In the first few verses, we have just an amazing theology of who Christ is, an amazing lesson that encompasses so much of who he is and what he's done. He, he speaks of Christ's superiority to the angels, as Daniel preached in the first sermon on the series. We've seen how Jesus was willing to take on human flesh, to be called our brother, remember, in the last couple of weeks, to, and in that to uh, overcome the power of death by his death and resurrection. He entered into our suffering. And as the great high priest, he made atonement for our sins. So today we turn to the third chapter. And let's take a look at these six verses. He begins by saying, holy brothers, or brothers and sisters. That word means, can, can certainly mean both and does mean both. Who share in the heavenly calling. And I'm going to come back to this phrase, the heavenly calling, at the end of the message. Tie it in with the very last verse. But he says, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. So the author's considering us, urging us, in light of all that he says thus far, <clears throat> and what he will say in the rest of the letter, to consider or fix our thoughts on Jesus. Most of the translations the King James Version, the ESV, other translations use the word consider Jesus. But I like the NIV translation of this word here because it gives an expanded understanding of what the Hebrews author is trying to say, to fix our thoughts on Jesus. In order to really understand who Jesus is, in order to gain a greater appreciation for who he is to us and what he's done. We have to fix our thoughts on him. We shouldn't just breeze through everything that the author of Hebrews has said thus far about Jesus. We shouldn't just breeze through Scripture without giving close consideration to who Jesus is and what he's done. In order to get that appreciation, we have to go below the surface. 
if we drive through those first two chapters of the letter and give only quick consideration to all the stuff that this author is saying here, and this applies to all of the Gospels and all of Scripture, if we just drive through it, we're preventing ourselves from gaining that deeper understanding. It's like taking that 30-minute drive. I know you were wondering when I was going to get back to Letchworth. It's like taking that 30-minute drive through Letchworth State Park without stopping along the way, without taking some of those trails that lead down to the river. One commentator calls us to take, to have the sharpened look or contemplation and a considerable protraction of of gaze. Take the time. Look closely. Appreciate and stand in awe of what the Word says about who Jesus is. There is value in driving through Scripture, so to speak, to get an overall view or picture of what the Bible says, or specifically a book of the Bible or the Gospels, whatever it is. But the slower we go, the more we stop along the way, the more we fix our thoughts, fix our eyes on what God is saying, the more we'll see and understand and be in awe of who he is. The deeper we go into the gorge and the closer we come to the river and the more that we sit and reflect on his beauty, on his majesty, the more we'll stand in awe of Jesus. The more we see what God's word reveals about him, the greater our appreciation, the more we'll be compelled to worship him. This morning we sang songs of praise and worship. And if we're true worshipers, we don't just sing the words. We'll reflect on the words we're singing and the truth that it conveys so it's not just singing. I think that happened for us this morning. I know it happened for me up here as I reflected on what the words of those songs said, it just caused me to stand in awe of the mighty God, that nothing can stand before him, that demons have to run and flee, that he is our salvation, that his blood cleansed us, all of those things. It magnifies Jesus in our eyes. So how much more then should we gain a deeper love and appreciation of Jesus when we plumb the depths of the revelation that God has given us about him in here. That same commentator I quoted a couple of minutes ago, Alexander McLaren, 19th century commentator, Bible teacher, pastor, he said this in summarizing what the author is saying in the first part of this verse. You will never see Jesus Christ if you look at him only by snatches for a moment and then turn away the eye from him. Any more than a man who comes out from some brilliantly lighted and dazzling room into the darkness as it at first appears of the midnight heavens, any more than he could see their glories in the heavens. The focus of the eye must be accommodated to the object of vision, Jesus, before there can be any real sight of him. We must sit before him 
and be content to give time to the gaze if we are to get any good out of it. Powerful words. Powerful truth. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, the Hebrews author says. He goes on to say he is the apostle and high priest of our faith. So the descriptive words that, about Jesus that the author attaches to him here in his exhortation are apostle and high priest. Now my interest is always piqued when I see a word in a verse of Scripture that's only used in that particular place or maybe one or two other places in all of Scripture, it usually, uh, it, it's usually an interesting thing to pursue that. There's some significant meaning to it sometimes. And, and I like to find out why it's only appear, it appears in that place. But the Hebrews author's use of the Greek word apostolain, which is translated as apostle or transliterated, it's not unique to this verse. It appears dozens of times in the New Testament. We see it used of the 12 disciples who became the 12 apostles. But what is unique is to see the word literally applied to Jesus. There's no other place in the New Testament where Jesus is called the apostle of our faith. It's interesting. Uh, we see him or hear Jesus as we read through the Gospel of John, oftentimes referring to the one who sent me. And that word apostle means a sent one. And so it's implied there, but the word specifically is used and attached to Jesus only right here in Hebrews. And there is a Hebrew word that is equivalent to apostle. It's Shaliak or shalak, I think I've said that correctly. And that Hebrew word that's equivalent to apostle, it describes an individual who is legally bonded as a representative of the one who sent him to act on that person's behalf. Legally bonded to act as a, a, a legally bonded as a representative as the one who sent them to act on their behalf. And there is a, apparently a rabbinic saying pertaining to the word. And that saying is, the one whom a man sends, who is the equivalent of himself. So think about that. We've seen who the author says Jesus is, and this just reinforces it. The Father sent the Son who is equivalent to him, or the equivalent of him. It's just further evidence to show us that Jesus is, in fact, not just the Son of God, but God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. More reinforcement of that truth. The high priest language that he uses here, we've seen already in the previous chapter, and Daniel preached last week from that passage. It talked about Jesus in the high priestly ministry. And we'll see much more of that in coming chapters of Hebrews. The high priest is the one who offers sacrifices on behalf of the Jewish people. Under the old covenant, those sacrifices were required time and time and time again. They were never sufficient to once and for all wipe out the sin of the people. But Jesus came 
And as the high priest, he offered himself, the spotless Lamb of God, the perfect man, God-man, for the sins of mankind. And so we see him as the sent one, as well as the high priest, the one who came from heaven and offered himself. It's sort of like a, how do you pronounce that word? Parabola. Joyce, you're the, you're, you're the math teacher. Parabola. He came down from heaven. He humbled himself. He became a man. He took on flesh. He offered himself as a sacrifice for sin, and God raised him from the dead and highly exalted him. The high priest and apostle of our confession. These are the words of Wyatt Graham. He's the president of the Gospel Coalition in Canada, summarizing this part of that passage. Jesus is the apostle because God sent him to speak on his behalf, from Hebrews 1.1 all the way through the fourth verse of the second chapter. God sent him to speak on his behalf. Jesus is the high priest because he assumed human nature to sanctify it. Hebrews 2, 5 through 18. Thus, the two titles intentionally hearken back to the two main points that the author has already made in Hebrews 1 and 2. As the apostle, God speaks in the Son. As the high priest, Jesus sanctifies, counsels, and makes atonement for his people. Let's move on to the second verse. We'll read verses 2 through 4 again. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. So here the author, once again, is he's employing the tactic of comparison. We know the title of the sermon series, Jesus is Greater. Jesus is greater. He's greater than the angels. Here we're, talking, we're going to be talking about Moses and his superiority to Moses. We see over and over again in the letter more of that. He employs that tactic of comparison. The angels are powerful and revered messengers of God, but Jesus is greater. Here he turns his attention to Moses. Now, if you're a sports fan, you likely have an opinion about who the GOAT, the greatest of all time is in any given sport. If you're a history buff, you may have your opinion about who the greatest president ever was or is. If you're a movie fan, you may think a certain actor or actress is superior to all others. And those opinions would vary depending on who you ask, but certain names would probably be mentioned more than others. So if a poll was conducted among the Jewish people in the first century as to who was the greatest of the servants of God in their history, there may have been a variety of answers, but it's likely, very likely, if not inevitable, that the top of that list would have the name of Moses. He was an enormously loved and respected man of God. An enormously loved and respected figure in Israel's history. God had great regard for Moses. He's the one who made him 
Moses the prophet, Moses the deliverer of Israel, Moses the lawgiver. When Moses' brother and sister uh, Aaron and Miriam grew jealous of him because of his calling and his ministry, God rebuked them in Numbers 12, 6 to 8. God speaking to them said, When there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Quoted by the Hebrews author here. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face. Clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? When Jesus appeared in all his glory with Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, who was it that appeared with Jesus? Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets. Moses' life was a type of Jesus. In other words, it was a foreshadow of Jesus. As so much in the Old Testament and so many figures in the Old Testament foreshadow the life and ministry of Jesus. As a baby, Moses was saved from Pharaoh's edict to destroy all the Hebrew boys. As a baby, Jesus was saved from the edict of Herod to do the same. Moses left a royal throne in Egypt. He was humbled to become a shepherd and ultimately returned to his people. Jesus left his throne in heaven, came to earth as a man, and went to the lost sheep of Israel. Under God's authority, Moses delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, and under God's plan, Jesus delivered his people from the bondage of sin to spiritual freedom. So it stands to reason that the author continues with this approach of comparing Old Covenant with New. When he does that, he employs the name of Moses. And the author doesn't diminish the ministry of Moses in any way. He simply points out that Jesus is greater. Many people are of the opinion that Tom Brady is the GOAT among quarterbacks in the NFL history. Greatest of all time. Don't tune me out if you don't like Tom Brady, okay? I'm not saying I agree with that or disagree with that. If you like him, I'm not disagreeing. I'm just neutral here. But the fact is that many people think he's the greatest of all time. He has seven Super Bowl rings. He has the most touchdown passes. He has the most passing yards. Of course, he played for 100 years, but that's beside the point. The list goes on and goes. But listen, his accomplishments don't diminish the accomplishments of other great quarterbacks in NFL history. And there are lots of them. The ministry of Moses may have been unparalleled in Old Testament history, and we can and should learn from the life of Moses, but the author says someone greater has come, the one who is the greatest of all time. The lamb is the goat. The lamb is the greatest of all time among all men. 
He's in a class by himself. The author says that Jesus was faithful to carry out all he came to do. Moses did the same. Moses was faithful in all of God's house. And he refers back to the Numbers 12 scripture that I just read. So the house here is not the tabernacle or the tent of meeting that Moses uh, used in his ministry, but of course it's a reference to God's people. The Hebrews author explains that in the later, in the later portion of, the, of this passage. It's a reference to God's people. Moses was faithful to carry out all he was appointed to do among God's people, in God's house. But Jesus was and is faithful much more so. Not only that, but Moses, as anointed as he was, was still just a part of God's house, just as you and I are. Jesus is over it. He created it. When you visit some of the beautiful estates, uh, some right here in the area, like Winterthur, I think the women are going to be doing a, a, a trip to Winterthur in a couple of weeks, the Nemours estate, if you've ever visited the Biltmore estate in North Carolina or Hearst Castle in California, we've had the privilege of visiting both of those. When you, when you go to these places, you marvel at the beautiful architecture, you marvel at the beautiful grounds, the structures. And the skilled craftsmen who built these places or the landscapers who used their skills, well, they're worthy of recognition, but they did the work for which they were appointed. But it's the men and women who conceived of these places, who designed them, who, whose names are most connected with them, that receive the greatest recognition. DuPont, Vanderbilt. Hearst. God, Jesus, is the builder of everything, from all of creation down to the church, his house. He conceived it, he designed it, he built it. He said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, after Peter's confession, I will build my church. He's the designer, the architect, the builder, all rolled into one. Verse 5, moving on, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. So Moses and the Old Covenant testify of what would come, of Jesus, the fulfillment of, of all the things that were prophesied. The old covenant under Moses, under which Moses served, was a temporary covenant. The new one is an eternal one. The old covenant is a foreshadow. The new one, the fulfillment. And once again, as we go through this book of Hebrews, we'll see this more and more. We'll see it illustrated throughout the letter of Hebrews, how the new covenant is a fulfillment and, a, and superior to the old. The first part of verse 6, Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. 
Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. John 3.35 said, The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. We are his house if we, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. That's the ESV translation, I think. Our translation says, we are his house if we hold on to courage and the hope of which we boast. Same things implied there. As we look at the first part of the final verse of our text, I want to go back to the first part of the first verse of the text as we wrap up the message. I see this as a passage. I see this passage, verses 1 through 6, as sort of a divine sandwich with a lot of meat in between. Verse 1 says, Brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling. We're brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling because of what Jesus did. Again, the apostle and high priest of our faith. John Piper said, we need a word from God. That was Jesus. He spoke through the Son. And we need a way to God. That was Jesus. He made the way back to the Father. Jesus, the apostle, the sent one, the final word from God. Jesus, the high priest, the one who makes a way to God. Since we're reconciled to God, we share in the heavenly calling, and that calling for each of us as followers of Jesus and part of his house is to be faithful servants just as Moses was, all the while recognizing that all the glory and honor belong to Jesus. Moses served in the face of incredible trials. Read the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, constant complaining by the Israelites, constant rebellion against God. Moses dealt with this day after day after day, year after year after year. At one point, God was so angry with the Israelites, he said to Moses, look, I'll just wipe them out. I'll make a new people out of you. And Moses, what did he do? He just said, Lord, no. You know, he stood in the gap for them. He prayed for them. Moses dealt with that rebellion all the time. And though he was not perfect, he endured faithfully in his calling in God's house. And we're called to do the same. If we share in the heavenly calling and are his house, we'll hold fast to our confidence and our hope. That confidence and that hope is squarely resting on Jesus. So today, you may say, I'm a believer. I've trusted in Jesus for my salvation. But is your confidence and your hope steadfast? day by day, throughout all the adversities of life. All of us have stuff. We face trials every day. Jesus said, in this world you'll have much tribulation, 
but take heart, I have overcome the world. Our family's gone through some stuff right now, and we're clinging to Jesus and praying for victory as we sung this morning. Is your confidence and hope steadfast through all the adversities of life? When the trials come, are you clinging to him? There's a a word in the Old Testament speaking of words that don't appear very frequently. Speaking of Hezekiah, the great king in Judah's history. It says that there was no one like him, before him or after him. And he clung to the Lord throughout all the circumstances of his life as a king. He clung to the Lord. A hallmark is more than a card company and a TV network that shows feel-good movies. Here are some definitions of a hallmark, other definitions. A mark stamped on articles of gold, silver, or platinum in Britain certifying their standard of purity can be a literal symbol on a piece of pottery. I meant to bring one today to show, but I forgot it. A distinctive characteristic of something or someone. John 6.27, the Gospel of John, speaks of the Father placing his seal of approval on Jesus. Let's just read that. John 6.27. Do not work for food, this is Jesus speaking, that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Perseverance in the faith, which the Hebrews author is speaking of at the end of this passage in verse 6. Perseverance, endurance, should be the hallmark of the Jesus follower. When we faithfully serve the one who's called us brother or sister, with our eyes and our hearts fixed on him, recognizing he's our creator, our redeemer, that he's above all things and all persons in our world, when we endure through the difficult times by his grace and rejoice in all things because of our life in him, God stamps his hallmark on our lives. When we surrender to him, God marks us too. He says, that's my son. That's my daughter. If you're here today and you don't know the Jesus of whom I speak, I'd invite you as we close the service today to come forward, to pray, to speak to someone here at the altar. We'll have a few people here in a a few moments about Jesus, the apostle and high priest that we've spoken of, the redeemer, the one who's above all things. If you are here today and you're putting other things above him, you know him, 
but your eyes aren't quite fixed on him. And other things have become more important in your life than they should be, maybe even more important than him. I invite you to come forward and receive prayer. If you have any other need, I'd invite you to do the same.